VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. D- Dave is shaking his head saying, yep, she was. She said it. <laughs> um, sitting in for Patty Daly, who is off today, and he will be uh, resuming on the show tomorrow, we understand, uh, refreshed and ready to go. Uh, but there are, in the meantime, lots and lots of things to talk about. And I always give this caveat every time I do the show, but just because I raise an issue does not necessarily mean that's what we're stuck with in terms of topics. Um, The listeners, the callers always provide some great um, input into what's happening in their community, in their town, in their neighborhood, in their home. Um, So uh, by all means, uh, give us a call and get on the show. And what tends to happen is people tend to wait a little bit and then something strikes their fancy and then they call and of course uh, then you we either have to rush you off the line at the end of the show or you don't get on at all so the earlier you you call the better well I know that this has been a problem for years and municipal and provincial governments have been looking at uh, various ways and means to address this problem and it's speeding Uh, and we see it all the time we see it in our uh, residential neighborhoods we see it on on the main thoroughfares, uh, highways, and in um, busy intersections, school zones, you name it. School is opening very soon and is something that we all need to be aware of. And I know a number of municipal governments have put a variety of measures in place to try to calm traffic and lower uh, speeding, especially in those little, you know, straightaways, if you know what I'm saying, places where roads open up a little bit and straighten out, people tend to give it a little more gas, and some people give it a lot of gas, if you know what I mean. I noticed uh, over the weekend, had occasion to uh, drive through Paradise, and I know noticed that um, on Trails End, they have some really interesting traffic calming measures involving a series of posts going across the road at crosswalks, forcing you to slow slow down and, and squeeze through. That's the first time I've seen that kind of a traffic calming measure. I know in St. John's uh, I've seen a lot of speed bumps. I've seen speed bumps in other communities as well. Some of them temporary, put in uh, you know during the summer months and some of them more permanent. Uh, down towards Kitty Vitty you'll see uh, permanent uh, speed bumps in around Belbins there. Uh, I know in uh, other places uh, they have the, the big curbs that bump out. I, I, I don't know what the technical term is for it. Is it bump outs? <laughs> Uh, or bumpers some of those will like the curb will bump out so you have to slow down because you have to get around that so all kinds of uh, traffic calming measures in uh, particular areas Uh, are they successful do you live on uh, a street that has seen a lot of problems in the past in um you know, speeding and that sort of thing. Have you had traffic calming measures put in your in place in your neighborhood? I know uh, right across the road here um, in Cam Mount Terrace, there have been a lot of those kinds of things done as well. Uh, how do you feel about it? Is it working? I'd love to hear from the mayor of uh, Paradise in particular, uh, Dan Bobbitt. It's very busy place for traffic. Anytime you drive through Paradise, it doesn't matter the day or time of day. Um, 
it's always busy there. So are some of these traffic calming measures working in your community? I'd love to hear from Mayor Dan Bobbitt this morning and any other uh, municipality or uh, people who are living in municipalities who have seen this problem and whether or not uh, your particular government is doing anything to address the issue. By all means, do give us a call. Well, St. Anthony is a busy spot these days. They've had this uh, succession of massive cruise ships and um, you always forget, they're almost like moose. You always forget how big they are uh, and just how many people. These are floating cities. And when you see these these huge cruise ships, you know, pulling up uh, onto the harbor apron here in uh, St. John's and, you know, they're towering over Atlantic Place. Just imagine what that looks like uh, in a community like St. Anthony, for instance which is so close to Lansom Meadows and all of those very interesting and unique and beautiful um, scenic locales. Um, so I'd like to hear what the people in St. Anthony have to say about these cruise ships. Is, is it resulting in a big boost in tourism in your area? Is it resulting in a lot more business? Is it busier? Does it cause problems in, in keeping people, you know, <laughs> from getting congested and all of those kinds of things? Uh, love to hear what's going on there. I noticed during my vacation that there, um, I was encountering, and when I started asking about it, I started noticing that a lot of other people were encountering it. And I've continue to notice it now even back uh, in St. John's. Uh, what's up with cell phone coverage of late? Have you had trouble getting a signal? Uh, when we were in Twillingate in August you could not get a cell phone signal to save your life and God knows I tried. Uh, texts we're even continually bouncing back or you get that little exclamation point saying, you know, that never went. Um, in fact, I was talking to a few people in Twillingate and uh, somebody told me that the, they finally got full bars when they were out participating in the recreational cod fishery in the water off Crow Head. <laughs> they had to actually leave Twillingate and go out on the water to get full bars. <laughs> um, some people at the time, uh, the people I was talking to were speculating that it had to do with, you know, the influx of tourism and, and just busier traffic on the uh, on the uh, cell phone network. Uh, but even here in St. John's, people are telling me that their phones will switch to 5G from time to time. So how is cell phone coverage in your area? And is it a problem? We've been talking about connectivity, haven't we, for some time. And there's been a lot of federal and provincial government money that has gone into improving connectivity in Newfoundland and Labrador because really it's an essential service now. You have to have it. But it, has it been a problem? Have you noticed any issues this summer? I'd love to hear from you if you have any issues on that. Um, on Friday, and this may have gone by the wayside because it was a Friday and it is summer, but O'Donnell High School put out a warning to uh, parents last Friday about um, a scavenger hunt style list that they had become aware of. VOCM News covered the story and we had a couple of news stories on it. But again, because it was a Friday and going into the weekend, people may not have been paying as close attention. Um, we did hear from a gentleman, um, this is O'Donnell, but uh, we did hear from a gentleman in CBS who claimed that he had a friend who has a child attending or about to attend uh, Holy Spirit in um, CBS. And... Um, 
he said that they had a similar type of initiation list. And uh, let me tell you something. This list is, you know, it goes beyond hijinks. It is, uh, some of them are criminal in nature, asking people to participate in either vandalism or uh, sexual activity or um, uh, racist type of uh, stuff. I mean, it's just a, a really disgusting list. I can't go over a lot of it on the air because, as I uh, previously said, it uh, would violate CRTC regulations, would you believe? But it's really quite alarming. So O'Donnell, uh, the administration there, even though it's the summertime, became aware of this list and put out a warning to uh, parents. The administration received information that a group of senior students have crafted a list of tasks designed to initiate some of our new students, our grade 10 students in particular. These activities are believed to be starting today. This would have been last Friday and may continue beyond. Please be aware that these tasks encourage participants to, in some cases, and I'm reading directly from this uh, letter, commit acts of vandalism, harassment, exploitation, abuse, or other activities deemed to be criminal or racist in nature or could have health-related consequences. These uh, activities include posting nude pictures, uh, sharing nude pictures of themselves with others, consuming vape juice, putting foreign objects in their bodies, those kinds of things. We would like to think that our students are above these inappropriate acts, but wanted to inform you so that you can ensure you are aware of where your children are and have a conversation with them. And uh, of course, O'Donnell and the school district as a whole has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to participation in initiation activities. And you can remember that this was a big story in the news several years ago. Um, uh, they also say that there is a student athletic policy that if you if, if it becomes known that you participated in any of this thing, these, these kinds of lists, it can impact a student's ability to participate in the high school athletic program. So if uh, they have proof that you uh, participated in something like this and you want to get on the basketball team or the uh, soccer team or the hockey team or whatever the case may be, they're going to say, no, sir. So there are consequences. And though that's, that's the easy stuff. That doesn't mean to say that uh, the criminal stuff will be overlooked because that is being investigated by the RNC. The RNC is aware of this list. Anyway, if anybody has uh, encountered anything like that or is aware of anything like that circulating among um, your particular student's school body, uh, I'd love to hear from you on that as well. We have lots more on the go, and uh, we're going to go straight to our callers now and start the show this morning with uh, Ruby, who uh, wants to talk a little bit more about that rally tomorrow at Confederation Building. Hello, Ruby. Good morning, Linda. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm praying to God for a dry day tomorrow. It looks like the, uh, the rain may start to dissipate tomorrow morning. Excellent. We're, whether it's rain or shine, we're going to be on Confederation steps tomorrow. But we would like to have a little bit of dry weather. Certainly. So, of course. It, it always I makes have, for a be better turnout. Make sure Eddie gives us that, please. <laughs> well, I have, no, I have no influence there whatsoever. Um, okay, thank you. But uh, so, Ruby, do you expect a big turnout? Uh, we are expecting a big turnout. We have confirmation back from about 100 or 120. 
so we're open for more than that. That's just what came back in our group saying, confirming they will be there. But we are certainly open for a lot more than that. And the rally is a mass rally about addiction and mental health. It's not, it's a peaceful rally. It's not a protest. I want to make that quite clear to our public. This is not a protest. This is a peaceful rally. We have our Minister of Health, our Minister of Justice. We have our leader of the opposition. We have several people that are speaking at that rally. Right. This is a show of, uh, I, I guess, the faces of the people who have been impacted by this scourge that we're dealing with. That's exactly. And we will also be hearing from parents of the uh, who have had loved ones pass. We have a testimony from one that couldn't make it. He's living in Labrador, but he sent along a letter that he once read about his walk in, in addictions and how he got himself out of it. We have one young person. Well, he's not young. He's now an adult, but he came up from being a child right up to his adult days with addictions and has been clean for three months. He's going to take the podium and tell what his life has been like. And we're just out there reaching out to people and saying we need help, we need change. And we want to have a voice tomorrow and let our powers to be here, the hurt and what we're feeling out there. We've all been affected in some way or another. Ruby, I, I heard your call to open line, I think it was Friday, um, uh, and you lost your son to addiction, is that correct? I lost a son from another mother. I took a child at, when he was 16 years old, and I buried him at 32. Heartbreaking. And I can tell you the stories and the life that I lived and the houses, the doors that I knocked on in this city. A police told me he wouldn't go there with a sidearm by himself. I did this one and two o'clock in the morning looking for him. I can tell you it's a road to hell, and I don't know if there's ever any end. So but we're all out there looking for that end. Death, death is not the end, because then you always feel, will my grandchild, will my son, will my daughter, will they be a part of that? So, so what's going on? I know this is a multifaceted problem, and there's a, any variety of reasons uh, why someone can suddenly find themselves in, you know, addicted to a substance or whatever the case may be. But have things changed? Is, is it worse now than it ever was before? What, what do you see as happening? Oh, it is definitely much, much worse. I don't know how it got to that. Uh, young people are leaving their home where they have a safe environment, maybe because they just can't get along with their parents or get along with whoever, and they go out, and we find that they're, they're living in some kind of an apartment or a rooming facility, and they look like they have no hope. And, and maybe just turns to drugs for that bit of hope. I really don't know, but I can tell you right now, in the past 25 years, I can guarantee you it's probably 70 or 80 times worse 
than what what I've seen because when I started out, the the biggest drug or the artist drug that young people were doing back then was probably marijuana. Because I ran an open custody home for young offenders for 15 years. So I have seen it all. And it has gotten worse. And and it's getting even worse than that. So we need to to find a solution. That's my goal in life, is find a solution to this problem and get that solution in action. So what, I mean, the solution is not an easy one. If it was, uh, it would be in place. So what kind of elements need to be part of that solution? We need to look at our own list. We need a safe place for those people to go and a follow-up when they come out. We don't have that right now. I don't care if he's 16 years old. We have a, a, a bit more facilities up till they're 18. But once they get 18, they've already got those drugs in their bodies since they've been 12, 13 years old. And when they're 18 years old, they have nowhere to go. They might go in a house that's on the marching road where there's nine beds in one room, cots, and they're all they're all involved in drugs or of some nature. That's not a safe haven for our children or our brothers or our sisters to come out and go to. We need a facility in this province that can deal with some. Sure, we're not going to save everybody. But, you know, one life is precious, let alone 100. For sure. And, Ruby, uh, this um, um, rally tomorrow was spearheaded uh, by uh, Tina Olivero, who lost her son Ben, as we all know, just a few weeks ago. Such a tragic circumstance there. Um, Do you think this rally would have happened without that impetus, without her uh, sort of um, taking this and saying, uh, you know, turning, I guess, her grief into action? Well, maybe not. Uh, I met Tina for the first time since the death of her son. Uh, I called Tina, and we talked about a rally, and we made it happen. So uh, it's it's been something that I've wanted to do for a long, long time. And I've been on a local line, as you know, over the years, more than once talking about drugs. But... I just never took the initiative to get up and do it. But now I took a role in this and took on organizing this rally. And I'm glad that I did. And I'm praying to God that we're going to have good weather so there's no reason the moms and the dads and the brothers and the sisters and whoever is affected in any way with mental health or drugs can attend that rally, and let's hear what our minister and uh, minister of health and our minister of uh, justice will will tell us that they're prepared to help find a solution to this. It affects us all in the end, Ruby. I, I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll be watching that rally very closely tomorrow. Thank you, and we invite all press. And I'm sure everyone will be there. I really do appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Uh, has your family or someone you know been affected by uh, uh, mental health and addictions uh, issues and not getting the help they need and, and um, I suppose, languishing? We've all seen the impact. You don't have to go very far uh, throughout Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to see it. Uh, it confronts you. Uh, right in your face. Uh, we've seen an increase in crime, 19%, I think, according to the statistics that were released um, over my vacation. Um, just extraordinary, the impact that it's having. Not just here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're not unique. We're just catching up to the rest of uh, North America and the world, for that matter. So how does it get addressed? I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly uh, this morning. We're going to go now to... Matthew Dixon, uh, who has a very interesting story to tell. Hello, Matthew. Hi, how are you? Good. Welcome to Newfoundland. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> so you are participating in a cross-Canada bike ride, raising awareness about schizophrenia. That's right. So what prompted uh... you to take this kind of a journey? <laughs> well, I'm from St. Andrews, New Brunswick, and when I was 20, I bicycled across Canada with a group uh, called Tour to Canada. It's a supporting trip that they go across Canada each year. They're just behind me a little ways. They'll be going to Newfoundland. And I wanted to do more fun stuff like that with my life, but at 22, I got schizophrenia, and that took my life down a whole different path. But I'm 51 now, and I slowly recovered. <laughs> it took pushing 30 years, but... Uh, yeah, I feel pretty pretty good these days, and uh, this spring I thought, you know what, I think I might be able to do this trip again. I've been wanting to do it for years, and I've been talking to people about it. And uh, But anyway, I, I had the time off work this spring, but I didn't have the funds to do it. But uh, the first sign was getting a $2,000 income tax refund uh, this spring. It was uh, the first sign that I should do this trip. It's the biggest refund I've ever gotten. Uh, anyway, it was enough for me to get out there. And I, I didn't have funds to keep going, but uh, enough to start. I had a half-decent bike, uh, some half-decent gear. It, it wasn't the best, but, and I had a rough route of where to go. Uh, but I thought, you know, if I get myself out there and I show people that I'm serious about this, I'm not just talking about it for the umpteenth time, um, maybe people would donate to help me out. And it it, it worked. It's uh, For the first month, um, most days I didn't know if I would have enough food for the next day for campground fees or and uh, enough money for food. But money magically just kept coming in. And the last month or so, I've had some larger dona larger donations of $500 or so. And uh, it's enough for, uh, to take the money worries away from me. But yeah, it's, uh, it's worked out. I'm very, very happy about this. So what was the journey like? You know, were there had you mentioned, you know, you didn't know from one day to the next sometimes if you had enough food to eat. But, you know, physically at 51 and I'm not. <laughs> but, you know, you're you're not as in good a shape in 51. You can be as you were, let's say, at 20. Uh, did you find it, you know, harder than you thought? No, uh, I've been telling people for years it's a lot easier than you think. People in their 70s and even 80s do the trip. So Tour de Canada recommends three months to train for the trip. And this is this is training not to get you much faster. It's just so that you can go long distances without getting sore. Biking for long distances, five, eight hours a day, is so much easier on the body than running or walking five, five or eight hours a day. Uh, it's It's just so much easier than people think. And the body can believe it or not, do those distances like 100 kilometers or more day after day after day. I take about one rest day a week and 
it's uh, it, this is very very achievable, and I've been trying to tell people for years that they can do it. Uh, it's daunting mentally. It was daunting the first time at 20. It was even daunting the, the, this time at 51. But uh, I'm not I'm not fast. The Tour de France riders would just blow right by me. And, <laughs> but that's yeah, what they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know, yeah. I'm not grinding up the hills. I'm not standing up in my pedals, you know, just flying up the hills. Plus, I've got all my gear on my bike. I just slow and steady, just granny gear, just slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady. And you get up them. And, yeah. What about the weather? I've been very, very lucky. So, in New Brunswick and other parts of the Maritimes, I'm not sure about Newfoundland, but we had probably a couple months of rain in, in some places. And I probably, and I don't even dare say this to people but from back home i only had to put my rain jacket on about maybe six times seven times on the trip if that and uh i've avoided smoke and fires i've avoided floods avoided tornadoes it's i've been very lucky yes indeed because we've had quite the weather (laughs) uh year in canada right across canada so tell us a little bit about um what uh, really uh drove you to um make this cross canada journey raising awareness about schizophrenia you say you were diagnosed at the age of 22 how did it affect you Uh, were you aware that something was wrong oh did we lose him Oh, hello. Sorry. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah were okay. you uh, when you were diagnosed at the age of 22, did you know something was wrong? Uh, um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so through my, inter- <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> through my university years, I could feel some symptoms coming on, but they were incredibly mild. I didn't know what mental illness was. I knew about mental health a little bit from school, but uh, I didn't know about OCD or bipolar or depression. Um, and uh, But I could still do stuff. I, I even biked across Canada not feeling the best. But when the disease hit, it hit hard. And I went from sort of muddling through life slightly to just flat on my back, incapacitated, not knowing whether I was going to live or die from one moment to the next. It was terrifying. And uh, anyway, the pain slowly left year by year. I, I noticed an improvement in my health every single week for about 30 years. And... Uh, I'm in the 25% of people with schizophrenia that don't hallucinate, so I didn't have that to deal with. I never got involved in any, I had no substance abuse problems. I willingly took my medication. I'm still on it, and you're going to have a hard time getting me off the drug, but uh, I feel great. I simply pop a pill every day. I try to live a healthy lifestyle, and that's it. I I feel wonderful these days. I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not, uh, I have my ups and downs, but they're in the the normal range again. So, it, so that's fairly common, though, isn't it? A schizophrenia often hits in those formative years, you know, your late teens, early 20s, at least for men, my understanding yeah. is. Yeah, I've heard women can, uh, can get it in their late 20s, but then you can get like a lady or a young girl who gets it like in her teens, like 12 or 13 or something. So it's a bit, uh, it's not set in stone. So Were you, did you have a self-awareness that something was wrong or, or did you have supports around you saying, uh, hey, Matt, you, you need to get some help? No, I was pretty, I, I checked myself in. I'm like, no, I, I need help here. And uh, I was classified as getting early intervention. And yeah, so yeah, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to get better. It's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to make that admission. And uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. 
and I, I can understand why some people would be in denial or don't think they're sick. Um, it's, it's very tough to start down that path, um, but I can tell you it's well worth it. So you had, a, a, I guess, a, a, an awareness and a drive to get better. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I can tell you, like, when uh, I, I was thinking of taking my life, and I thought, you know, that's not good, Matthew. I, sh- I should get that checked out. So when I was living in Fredericton, New Brunswick, I went to the university health clinic. They took me to the uh, psych ward in the local hospital, and that was my introduction into the mental health system. And over the next so many weeks, uh, the disease really set in. And after so many weeks, they diagnosed me with schizophrenia. And I had to say, you know, do I do I try to fight this disease or do I keep... Uh, or do I just say bye to the world? And I, for some reason, don't know why, just out of the blue, I said, in a matter of seconds, I said, I'm going to fight this. And uh, I said, I'm going to put my life on hold. I accept the fact that I will do nothing I enjoy for the next maybe couple of years or so. A nurse had previously told me that uh, people can get better uh, in a couple of years. Um, I don't know where she got that stat, but uh, that's all I really had to cling to. And... So I said, down this path, a couple of years came and went. I still wasn't where I wanted to be. But what I want to tell people with this disease and I'm sure other mental illnesses, in the beginning, when the disease sets in, it can be very painful. But with treatment, um, the pain can come down to more manageable levels. It may not go away as soon as you want, but it can come down to more manageable levels that will allow you to carry on for much longer than you thought. And... Uh, it's uh, uh, please keep fighting. Uh, please keep hanging in there. It's uh, it's well worth the wait. Is schizophrenia a lifelong diagnosis? So uh, you can take your medication, but you have to do other things to help the medication work. Uh, you have to, you know, self care, uh, that sort of thing. You have to work on your recovery. The disease can sometimes leave people later in their forties, fifties, or or whatnot. But uh, I don't know if that's what's happening with me right now, and I have worked on my recovery. I don't know. It's uh, the disease. There's no cure for it. Uh, You could say I'm successfully managing the disease or it's in remission. I don't know what words you'd want to use. But, you know, the bottom line is I feel darn good. And if all I have to do is pop a pill and, you know, try to live a healthy lifestyle, that's (laughs) it's, it's not much on my part to do that. So. I don't know how true it is, but you hear anecdotally that, uh, you know, people who have uh, received a similar diagnosis will be on medication. They start to feel great. Then they they lapse on the medication or they stop taking it or say, I'm better now. And then they have a relapse. relapse. Is that a common? Uh, I've heard that. Yeah, that was not my case. Uh, I mean, really, it took me 30 years before I did feel better. I never really had the opportunity to say I feel great and I'll go off my medication. <laughs> I've never really totally understood that. I, uh, I mean, I'm, it's I, I, yeah, I was like, get that drug into me. It was one of the few things I could actually do to get better. So, so you're here to say, get help, and you can live a successful life with this diagnosis is that what you're trying to say yes i know you know i can't you know i can't save everybody and but i know there are people out there who uh in saskatchewan or alberta when i went through there there's a guy who said he know he knew an older man he'd since passed away but uh in his senior years or whatever years he was he had schizophrenia and he said he felt as right as rain he felt just fine and uh so i'm not the only one 
There's uh, and what I'd, I'd like to do is find other people living with this disease, feeling great. And uh, I know that's not you know a lot of people won't ever fully recover and whatnot. And I, you know, I don't want to say that's the holy grail, um, but you know some people live with this, with this disease and do find happiness uh, even though they do have symptoms. So it's uh, you can find peace with it. It's, uh, but I would like to know um, other stories of people who are feeling fine because I think we all, I, I would have loved to have stories like that, to, to have hope. You know, really there's hope for me to get better or at least improve somewhat. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I didn't have that when I first started out with this disease. I knew nobody who'd gone through it and come out the other side. I, I really didn't know anybody with the disease, hardly anybody, because we all hide. And that's one of the things I'm trying to uh, change with this bike ride. For me, I've gone through a great growth period of simply uttering, <clears throat> excuse me, uttering the word out loud in public, the sch- saying schizophrenia to strangers. I had to uh, <clears throat> whisper the word for 30 years. This has been a huge change for me to just simply say the word out loud in public. And one of the things I'm doing with my videos right now, my YouTube videos, is getting people when I've got some friends or people I meet uh, on my YouTube channel along this bike ride, I get them to say one, two, three, schizophrenia, and yell out loud in public. It's uh, We need to have conversations about this. The stats are... Uh, People with schizophrenia are no more prone to violence than the rest of the general population. The BC Schizophrenia Society says that people with untreated schizophrenia can be a bit more violent than the rest of the general population. I don't know what that stat is. Roughly 2% of the population is violent. Um, The same for people with schizophrenia. I don't know if with untreated schizophrenia that's like 3% or 5%, I don't know. But generally, we're we're peaceful people. And uh, we may act a bit different sometimes, but we're not out to hurt anybody. And um, it, it, it's kind of like saying, well, you've got to be afraid of those left-handed people because they're violent. Well, sure, some people who are left-handed are violent, but we get, we get to talk about left-handedness. The vast majority of us who are left-handed are not violent. And it's similar, um, you know, not totally, but similar with schizophrenia. And so many of us are just afraid. I was afraid, you know, to, you know, to tell somebody because I thought they might think it was like a serial killer or something. It's, it's uh, on top of all the other things I had to do with this disease. That's one more big thing I had to cope with for, for really no reason. Yeah, you had to deal with those perceptions. Did you, did you have um, the support of family and friends? Did they have any difficulty with your diagnosis at that very early age? I was very lucky. Um, my friends and family never gave me a hard time, accepted me, supported me. And, yeah, it's uh, very lucky that way. I was terrified in the early years that someone might give me a hard time with uh, verbal abuse or bullying, whatever. I never got that. Very, very lucky. And were they okay? Like, did they say, you know, Matt's uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he's he's recovering, he's doing well? Uh, you know, were they open to talking about it? Yeah, um, there's a, a in a book I read. It said that when really horrible things happen to you, uh, it's so intense and so horrible that some the people you know in your the people in your life generally can leave sometimes or at least not talk to you about what you're going through unless you have a close relationship with somebody. There was a lawyer uh, who gave a talk about mental illness and he said, try to find someone you can share your highs and lows of your day with. 
and I, I really recommend that. And that's easier said than done sometimes, but uh, to, it, it's hard for people to talk about because it's 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 intense. You're in this very intense world, but. For me, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to talk about all this intense stuff in my life. I simply looked at it as wanting to talk about my symptoms. Uh, you know, I have no problem talking about, you know, uh, uh, being close to suicide, uh, you know, the intense feelings going through my body. I think other people might think, well, I can't talk about anything with them because it's all just sort of intense. Well, no, I just want to, you know, ask me what it's like. Be curious. Ask me what, what it's like, what I'm going through. Um, spend time with me. Uh, spend a day with me. Uh, you know, tell me some jokes. You know, there's part of you. When the tsunami happened in Japan, uh, a reporter went over and he said, you know, they were cleaning up the rubble, uh, you know, this, this horrible situation. But he said they still wanted to go through the pleasantries of each day, like talking about whatnot. And, and, and uh, I was sort of the same way. I, I sometimes wanted to talk about my symptoms, but other times I'm like, you know, let's have some fun. You know, tell me a joke, uh, do something more normal, the, the pleasantries of life. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And uh, it struck me when you mentioned it, uh, that it seemed like you, you sort of clung to that that comment made by a nurse saying, you know, people do recover from this in a few years' time. So is that something that kept you going? And is that what is sort of your impetus now to, to get that message out that you can recover and live a, 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 a well life? Yes, definitely. I did. Uh, that was a big help in uh in helping me get through. Also, the fact that I biked across Canada, I remember thinking in, in the first part of my disease, thinking, uh, you know, if I biked across Canada, maybe I can get through schizophrenia too. So mental illness can be preventable. Uh, I don't think we talk about that enough, but some people think, well, I'm doing fine. I don't need to work on my mental health, whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, tragedy can affect anybody at any point in their life and we don't know if if or when it's coming but if you work on your mental health you can become more resilient before anything even happens to you and it can actually prevent some mental illnesses uh from from hitting you which is incredible so i recommend you know uh push yourself uh, do things uh there's a thing called post-traumatic growth uh where you can uh get stronger actually from trauma there's also another field called post ecstatic growth where you can do things that are pleasurable well, more positive uh, other than going through trauma things like signing up for a marathon or, or challenging yourself to build that growth in you and I, I encourage people to to read personal development books self-care books and learn how to get uh, stronger i mean navy seals do this uh, Olympic athletes do this, and they've put these on books on my website. Uh, I've got a list there of my best mental health tips, and these are books that have all this. I've, I've read books for decades on how to get myself better, and I've put my top books and articles, other resources on this list. That's a great place to start if you want to learn how to get the mind of James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Matthew, congratulations on this journey, this uh, um, very personal journey. And if people want to share their stories, their success stories, or some of their struggles, no doubt, uh, how do they do so? You can, uh, everything's at my website, mindaid.ca, like Band-Aid, just Mindaid, M-I-N-D-A-I-D.ca. My email address is there. I'm on most social media. For this bike ride, I'm posting on Facebook and YouTube the most, and 
Um, the other thing is that I'm raising funds for the provincial and national schizophrenia societies across Canada. So people in Newfoundland and Labrador can donate to SSNL um, or the, uh, the national uh, SSC uh, if they want. The other thing I do is I advocate for people with mental illness in developing countries. My website, MindAid, is the world's first one-stop shop for all the groups helping people with mental illness in developing countries. And was it Ruth who just called before about uh, the mental illness? Ruby, uh, yeah. Ruby, sorry, yeah. Um, uh, these these groups that I that I promote on my website for mental health in developing countries, they use models of basic mental health care that are low cost, proven effective, and scalable. And the World Health Organization is trying to figure out the best way to roll them out to the masses. In the meantime, I found these groups. They're scattered across the web. My website is simp- a simple curation site, and I put them all in one place for people to pick and choose from instead of trying to spend years trying to find them across the internet like I did. And one of them. Uh, Strong Minds, uh, it's called Strong Minds, they work in Uganda, but they've started Strong Minds America because they found these models of basic mental health care can work in urban uh, urban settings. And they've working, um, I forget what city they started in, I think is it Detroit maybe, but it'll say on Strong Minds America. And I'm wondering, you know, can we get these, you know, other low-cost uh, models of basic mental health care in other places in North America? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it indeed? Matthew Dixon, once again, congratulations. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Really appreciate you calling. Thanks so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing everyone in Newfoundland and Labrador. This is a great treat. I'll be there later this week. Um, I'm biking across for 11 or 12 days and from Port of Basque to St. John's and really looking forward to meeting people along the way. Come out and see me, um, side of the road. Uh, we're trying to put on some events. So yeah, very excited about this. Super. Matthew, thank you. You're welcome. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. We are well overdue for a break. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we're going to go now to Tom Davis. Hello, Tom. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm reflecting upon the rally tomorrow, and uh, we lost a nephew to um, to uh, fentanyl in uh, Maine a couple of years ago. And uh, Bev and I are going to be there, and I encourage people to come out and share and come together as a community. For sure, there's so many, you know, uh, family stories to tell. Yeah, you know, and reflecting upon it, you know, as we. It's like everything is just kind of falling apart, and and you know family plays a role in that, and and the different community bonds that we all used to share, which seem to be falling away, whether it was uh, you know organized religion or the different uh, community groups that uh, that individuals participated in. And it just you know as we sit back and watch it all happen, it we've got to figure out a way to I guess get back to some of the common morals and values and, and and to try and I guess rebuild the community that seems to God be going down a path of I guess self-centeredness and hedonistic pr- pursuit and and young people seem to be and selfies and yeah here's what I'm doing yeah yeah you know have we lost that it, collective uh, uh, sense of purpose well within most growth of societies you'll have a period where everybody's really focused on building the society and, and, and 
in their communities. And then at some point, that changes, and then people start looking inward, and it's happened you know, over and over again throughout through the millennia. And at that point, once everybody just cares about themselves, primarily cares about themselves, we lose our way. And, you know, the loss of the pillars of of society, like organized religion, which people can debate back and forth, and and the family unit, and people being productive and giving of their time to their communities. And I mean, all, you know, all that, you know, just the, the lack of health, whether it's physical health or mental health, everything is related. But, you know, if you look at a community having all these pillars, I can't think of one of the pillars that are not crumbling. And, uh, and we've really got to all look in the mirror, see how we all individually fit into that. And then we need to individually step up and, and, and then collectively, to your point, come together. But if all everybody cares about is themselves and their own pleasure and the distractions that we have allowed ourselves to pursue, um, it, it does not bode well. And young people see it. I mean, many of them have lost hope. And it's not just Newfoundland and Labrador. It's all around the world. And, and we uh, need that sense of the, uh, that uh, the greater good, uh, uh, whether it be your family, whether it be your community, uh, whether it be something uh, greater than yourself. Well, there's a great book. It's a pretty short, short book called Man's Search for Meaning um, by a gentleman who was in the um, concentration camps. And he was a psychologist when he went in and he studied. And and he and his observation was that, and then he, then he developed his own kind of branch of psychology when he came out. And his observation was that the optimist died, the pessimist died, but the people who gave out themselves, who made small sacrifices, if that could be a little bit of bread or sharing an article of clothing, they're the ones who seemed have the best chance to survive and he then came out in his branch of psychology basically said focus on other people and through that you'll find fulfillment and satisfaction in life and a life of giving or contributing is in was his in his opinion a more fulfilling and ultimately happier life and i agree so i mean i call on people to reflect upon that because it seems like all this self-centeredness is not causing any um, positive impact in society in actual fact you know as our hospitals close and as we people just run out of runway there seems to be people seem to be thriving but all the people in the community who rely on the community which most of us do either directly or indirectly um, it's, it's all just kind of falling away so we need to all figure it out that's not the reason I call but Anyway. Well, uh, do tell us the reason you you called. And unfortunately, I got to take another break because I went. Um, you I know, know. Uh, Matt was so uh, compelling that I I went beyond our, our uh, scheduled break. So I do have another break coming up before news. I know. Uh, so uh, do tell us why you called. Okay, I just want to quickly touch on something. Our our leaders, all on both the conservative and the liberal side, provincially and nationally, keep harping on how Newfoundland oil is some of the lowest carbon emission oil in the world. It's that quote from David Brazel last week, but not to pick on him directly, just it, they all seem to repeat it over and over again. Our oil production is dropping in the first six months of this year. It went 13% down compared to last year. However, 60% of our oil approximately is from Hebron, which is some of the dirtiest oil in the world. It is both heavy and acidic and high in sulfur. And 91% of all the oil in the world is cleaner than Hebron oil. So just something for people having the back of the mind. I called because there's a, a lot of debate and a lot of pushback from Eastern uh, 
from NL Health Services, the Eastern Zone Healthy Food Policy for Retail, and 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 we have these tropes that keep getting repeated about that you know all food is food, and 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 you had a gentleman Paul Toomey from the Eating Disorder Foundation who has very a specialized group of people, and, and our family is also touched by an eating disorder, so I'm very sensitive to this. However, we have a massive problem with obesity and with uh, chronic uh, degenerative diseases like like diabetes and cancers and heart disease and strokes in Newfoundland and Labrador, highest in the country and some of the highest in the world. And we do need to point a finger at unhealthy foods. And what people lose sight of is the reason that we're eating these foods is not because we've made the choice, although we'll argue that we have. It's because very large multinational retailers and producers are producing this food, and they actually have chemical engineers, chemists that design the food to make it addictive and also to make it as inexpensive as possible for them to produce and, by default, less nutritious. So, you know, if if government does not put a bullseye on these unhealthy, and I won't even call them foods because, you know, when people argue that a Timbit or Tim Hortons, you know, Timbit or, or a donut or a bag of chips or a candy or candy bar, they're not chocolate bars, they're candy bars, that they're food. I mean, I really have to take exception to it. Now, I understand that people are calorie deficient, like some with eating disorder, that, that's a very, so we have to be careful. However, you know, we demonize cigarettes and we demonize alcohol because we know they are bad for us. And reports just came out about alcohol that says that no alcohol is safe. But we need to remember that the wine producers and the cigarette tobacco producers have always been trying to brainwash us with how this was, you know, good choices somehow magically, that a little bit of wine was good for us and, and all that stuff. And the same thing happens with food. And, and you know, I just call on people to to realize that if you look around at ourselves collectively and then the collectivism that we talked about earlier – a lot of people, I mean, young people in particular, they live off energy drinks. They live off junk food and, and, and take out food, and they don't have any balance in their life. So when Paul Toomey talks about balance, it's really important. But I think if most people reflect upon the food that they're consuming, they realize there is no balance. I mean, greens seem to be almost not present in people's, most people's diets. And if it is, it might be a Caesar salad, which is kind of junk food in itself. And how do we get to the point where where we can get back to like more traditional, you know, and again, getting into the community, family-based eating where you're sitting around the dining room table and, and eating a healthy food that you've prepared that is close to nature as possible and not something that is barely recognizable by your body as, as having any nutrition at all. Yep, uh, good points, Tom. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there for today, but I really do appreciate your, your call this morning. Everyone, take care. Lots to mull on. Thanks. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back right after this. Hi, we're back. Uh, because we were delayed in our uh, in our um, commercial breaks, we're going to go now to news. But when we come back, we're going to speak with the mayor of Marystown, Brian Keating, for an update on the Canning Bridge. So stay tuned for that. We're up to news time. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. And we're back. We're going to go now to uh, the mayor of Marystown, Brian Keating, who has been waiting patiently on the line. Hello, Mayor Keating. Good morning. How are you today? I'm all right. A sad day in Marystown today. Oh, definitely, yeah. 
one of our matriarchs of the town, uh, Miss Annie Brenton, passed away, and we got a large funeral. So uh, I'd like to pass out, first of all, our sympathy from the town and myself, of course, and family to the, the Brennan family. And, uh, of course, that all reflects on our bridge, which is another issue for our bridge. Well, indeed. So uh, is it going to be difficult for people to get to the funeral? Um, you know, what kind of a journey are they going to have to make? Well, actually, the, the church is on the si- on the north side, so people from the south side are going to have to travel the, the extra distance to go there. But uh, all the funeral homes are on the north side, on the south side. So uh, God love Miss Annie. she got to make a longer journey, but uh, we granted one of her final wishes, and she's actually going to get permission to travel across the bridge today in a, in a safe manner, just uh, the hearse, apparently. Oh, that's so poignant. Oh, it's phenomenal for the Brennan family and the town of Marystown because she's one of the, like I said, one of the matriarchs of our town and well-respected for many, many years and loved by everyone. So tell us a little bit about uh, her impact on, on Marystown. Well, she's been involved with many, many different uh, organizations straight to town with Red Cross and so many other organizations. And one of her uh, things that she'll always remember, her door's always been open and for friends and strangers alike. So well-known and, and obviously well-respected. Uh, respect is not even the word. Worship is more of a word. I'm told she's known as the Mother Teresa of Marystown. Uh, that she is, and I'll tell you right now, she's uh, the stuff that no one knows that Miss Annie done is uh, way outweighs what people know she's done. She's been a, a pillar for everybody in the town and a, a great family. So it leaves quite a void. Oh, definitely. She'll be missed by everybody for a long, long time. Well, it's so wonderful that uh, people will be able to share in this wonderful tribute to her life. Uh, What time is the funeral? At 10.30. At? 10.30 today. Yeah, at at which, which church? Sacred Heart Parish, the Catholic Church in Marystown. Very good. Now, uh, she's making that final crossing on the Canning Bridge. What's the latest on that? Well, right now, they got an engineering consultant firm hired, uh, but the frustration on the bridge is growing and growing. That's, as you are well aware, this has been an ongoing uh, issue. Uh, there's been organizations reaching out. Uh, the council as a whole has been, uh, been doing due diligence, uh, meeting with Premier, meeting with uh, ministers or MHA. We had a meeting with our MHA this week. We had a organization formed from the time concerned citizens, and uh, it's actually... Uh, it's getting more and more frustrating, and it's also getting more and more financial burden on everybody. Seniors, uh, the blue-collar worker, is uh, it's devastated to the whole Bjorn Peninsula. And uh, like I said, the council on that, we've been working hard to get this, but never fast enough, of course. Uh, right now, we're coming into the winter season, so we know there won't be much going on. But we're hoping that the spring, that the engineering and the design will be ready to start construction this spring. And the council and myself, of course, and the residents are going to be pushing our MHAs, our member of parliament, to get this bridge on the go. It's not, and I quote this, it's not a complex, the road system is there. It's just, you know, it's a 311-foot bridge, of course, which is a fairly substantial span. But uh, we know this is not a, uh, a unique system. This is not an underwater tunnel. This is a bridge that was designed back in the 60s. And uh, we know there's bridge designers out there that can pull this together fairly fast. And that's what we're hoping as a council and the residents of Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula. You must be getting a better sense now on the economic impact, not only on individuals, but on the town itself. Well, uh, we know people that are uh, 
the rental properties are gone down, the transportation, the taxi companies are gone down, and uh, it's just an oh, the domino effect that uh, this bridge is having is uh, you can't even measure it because uh, some people are uh, very outgoing on what they're doing, but there's uh, there's some people that don't say nothing, but it's being affected. You know, if it costs you an extra uh, $100 to go get your prescriptions and your groceries because of gassing and travel and stuff, uh, those people that use those systems uh, can't afford it. Nobody can afford it. This don't affect only the, uh, the lower uh, to the middle class, the upper class. It affects everybody. And your organizations, you know, uh, it affects like people that have, we just finished this uh, signing sea festival in Marystown, and people couldn't go out to the Little Bay from the north north side because it was an extra a half an hour, an extra 30 kilometer drive. So it affects organizations. It affects everybody, you know. It actually affects the church. People uh, don't even go to church like they do because it costs them that extra money that most seniors and most people on the Bjorn Peninsula just don't have with the way inflation is on the Bjorn Peninsula and the way inflation in Newfoundland and Canada has come. I know you're heading into the church soon, but how did it get to this stage? How is it that plans weren't in place for the replacement of this bridge until it was suddenly shut down? Well, uh, that's the million-dollar question. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know. But uh, we're not in the blame game in the town of Marystown. We're in the let's get it done and let's work together to make it a successful and get the bridge there as fast as we can. So, you know, hindsight, everybody got a reasoning and gave you answers. Uh, we know the inspections on the bridge and stuff were supposed to be done. We're not sure, and I'll never be able to comment on it. But uh, it is very surprising to myself, of course, and all the residents of Marystown and Bjorn Plinza, how we were using the bridge with tractor trailers and dump trucks going across it on a, on a Wednesday, and Thursday it was down to eight ton being closed automatically. So yeah, there was some people that dropped the ball, and uh, but we're not in the blame game. We're in the let's get this bridge together and help the residents of Marysan and the Bjorn Peninsula get back to a normal stall of life. Mayor Brian Keating, uh, our deepest condolences to everybody in Marystown on the passing of Annie Brennan. Uh, uh, hopefully she gets uh, the proper send-off that she so richly deserves. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. And once again, the town of Marystown will mourn one of the biggest losses. And we had many uh, great patriarchs go before, but she'll be deeply missed by myself and the whole town and the whole, the whole region. And thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, when we come back, we're going to hear from the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, uh, about uh, policing and other matters in Newfoundland and Labrador when we come back right after this. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Our next guest is the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. Hello. Hi. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty well. How goes the summer? Uh, you know what, having an excellent summer, uh, certainly the weather has cooperated for the most part. I uh, hope everyone else is having a great summer as well. Unfortunately, in St. John's, as I look out my window from Confederation Building, it's a bit rainy and windy, so one of the reasons I did want to call in this morning was to talk about the weather, not something you think about the Justice Minister uh, is talking about, but we do monitor the weather from a public safety perspective all the time, and it is coming, up, uh, coming upon hurricane season, uh, and the Canadian Hurricane Centre is monitoring hurricane or, or tropical storm Franklin at the moment, which is moving up towards us. Uh, so just so everyone is aware, you always be aware of the weather. Uh, be prepared is what we tell people all the time. Have a kid at home in case something happens like flooding or wind damage to houses. Unfortunately, you know, these events we've been watching all summer. We haven't had the fires, forest fires here like they have in the Northwest Territories and British Columbia. Uh, very serious situations. We had them last summer and lucky enough uh, for us, we escaped any damages to the communities in central Newfoundland. Uh, but weather is changing uh, very quickly. 
quickly due to climate change and uh, you know the Department of Justice and Public Safety certainly asked people to be prepared for any weather events that might hit in communities throughout our province. Yeah we got a little update from the Canadian Hurricane Centre there uh, last week and uh, you know indicating that there's going to be more named storms and now we know that uh, Franklin is something that they're keeping a very close eye on and I noticed that the uh, the provincial government had put out this uh, um, advisory saying you know put a little kit together now is the time before all of this stuff starts to happen because we know we're in hurricane season now and then we put a question of the day out there and ask people are you prepared do you have a kit in place in case you know you lose the power for a few days and the overwhelming majority of those it's not scientific by any stand standards <laughs> but the overwhelming majority of people who responded to that question said no i don't have a kit yeah so did that surprise you y- yeah it is a little bit surprising but at the same time i mean people are being honest about it and i hope the people that said no i hope uh, you know your question of the day would have triggered them to say no i don't i need one uh, i mean it doesn't take a lot of time and effort to put one uh, in your closet have it prepared obviously fingers crossed hopefully you'll never have to use it uh, but in the event there is a storm or damage to your home or your area and you need to leave for whatever reason uh, you know it's there and ready to go i mean like I said, we were fortunate not to have forest fires here over the course of this summer, but look at what happened last year with Hurricane Fiona. I mean, completely devastated the town of Port Basque, a storm that they've never seen. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have seen bad weather. I mean, we're known for it. We talk about it. We joke about it. But that was, you know, one of the most, if not the most serious storm that this country has seen in terms of housing uh, damage and loss. Houses just that have been there for 100 years, just falling into the ocean due to storm surges and wind in that area. So very clear signal that things are changing, weather patterns are changing, and uh, government is doing what it can to be prepared in terms of uh, the environmental risks, the land risks, uh, erosion and things like that, and doing mapping. Uh, but we do ask people in the province to do their part to be prepared for their own safety uh, in the event that they need to uh, take action. Is the Department of Public Safety doing anything differently now in the wake of Fiona in preparation for God for forbid we have another storm of that magnitude? Well, certainly one of the things we're doing, I think we're communicating and we will continue to communicate with the public as much as we can. We want people to uh, pay attention to government's Twitter feed, government's Facebook page, uh, government's webpage to know that it's a trusted source for uh, weather details and information about storms when they hit, who people can call, where they can go, be it the Red Cross, who we work with very closely uh, after Fiona hit, uh, and the department as well. I mean, we've I think the public safety component of justice and public safety has been uh, incredibly enhanced over the last couple of years, not just for storms, but for other public safety issues as well, like uh, the RNC policing, RCMP policing, um, as well as uh, Newfoundland Labrador Search and Rescue, which may very well play a role in the event we have uh, environmental and weather disasters in the future. So your department is uh, justice and public safety. On the justice side of things, we just had this uh, uh, policing governance conference in St. John's. Um, um, There were some very important conversations that came out of that, including um, the desire for changes to uh, police governance in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I understand we have kind of a unique situation uh, when it comes to the RNC and how it's uh, governed through the RNC Act of 1992. So are changes... uh, 
uh, in the offing there? Is that something that the department is looking at? Yeah, it's, it, it absolutely is something we're looking at. And I, I like the way you phrase it, that there were important conversations that happened in that conference. And uh, discussion and conversation is always very important when change is being discussed. Uh, I understand, you know, certainly in the public in the last couple of days, there's been conversations about civilian-led oversight board for the RNC in this province. But my understanding as well at that conference, there was conversations about uh, the negative aspects that civilian-led uh, oversight can have. So, you know, there's pros and cons to every approach uh, with uh, any structure that's going to oversee any board, whether it be police or health authorities or education or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, policing in this country is uh, a big conversation as well among my colleagues across the country. Uh, the premiers have had in-depth conversations about policing in this country, uh, and it's changing, and crime is changing, and patterns are changing. And, uh, you know, I talked about how we've enhanced the public safety part of this department, but we've also enhanced the justice side of this department as well to deal with policing. Uh, in our most recent budget last spring, you know, we allocated almost a million dollars to create a new 10-member policing and crime prevention unit within the Department of Justice and Public Safety. You know, I suggested that we needed that to look at best practices of policing, not only in this country, uh, but across the world. How is policing best delivered? We need to do our research. We need to do analysis on that to make sure that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians feel safe and are delivered, um, you know, the appropriate level of policing in this country, in this province. A uh, couple of things they're looking at is, you know, that group is looking at is how to provide oversight and monitor our police contracts with the RCMP here in the province. Uh, also researching and developing legislation, which, as you said, our RNC Act now is almost, or it is, over 30 years old. Uh, we need to review that, look at it. Um, are there changes necessary? Uh, do we need a brand-new piece of policing legislation? And that's something they're going to work at, uh, look at. That would include examining civilian-led police oversight uh, in this province uh, in terms of possible new legislation. We need to work with our Indigenous communities to ensure there's culturally appropriate services in place. Uh, we have to implement initiatives that exist on our First Nation and Inuit policing program, so that's something this new team is uh, is looking at as well. Uh, we need to engage all stakeholders, too. I certainly want to thank First Voice. They've been uh, out front in this, and I would suggest they kickstarted this conversation on civilian-led um, oversight uh, with the report they have. Uh, I appreciate what they've added to the conversation, uh, but we do need to continue to engage other stakeholders as well, like our other Indigenous governments throughout the province, uh, women's groups, other racialized groups as well that have uh, comments and input and necessary conversations with them about uh, how policing looks here going forward. So there's a lot of work being done. Uh, we have a new team in place that's doing the work and research and look forward to getting some analysis back and uh, making any necessary changes as we move forward. Some participants ex expressed some disappointment, however, that you weren't in attendance at that conference. What happened there? So, um, yeah, so first of all, I do want to note that there were uh, officials there from this team uh, who were at the conference and listening to everything that was said and participated. Uh, I was invited to the conference, actually agreed to attend, uh, and then uh, was invoiced for my attendance and there is a government policy that ministers and uh and the Premier cannot pay for speaking engagements. Uh, obviously, that could be a little bit political risky, uh, political risk there to pay and go to events. Uh, we don't want to use taxpayers' money to pay uh, ministers to give uh, their views and their speeches at uh, events like that. So, unfortunately, I couldn't do it attend. I, I did provide greetings and welcome them all here to New Flannel Labrador and wish them luck on their uh, deliberations and conversations uh, at the conference uh, and certainly heard feedback already from people uh, who attended uh, and look forward to continuing those conversations. There's uh, one of the uh, very important conversations that's being had now right across Canada is uh, what is being termed as an RCMP recruitment crisis. Uh, are we seeing that here? 
Yeah, we are seeing it here, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. There is a um, there is a large issue with recruitment issues at the RCMP. Uh, I re- recently read an article um, where the commissioner of the RCMP was quoted as saying that. Uh, the recruitment strategy and the process of the RCMP is really what keeps him up at night. Um, so if it keeps him up at night, it's certainly going to make us here in the Department of Justice and Public Safety uh, be concerned and think about it as well. Um, like I said, policing has changed, and one of the things that's changed is the RCMP are struggling to recruit members uh, who want to to be part of the RCMP uh, and then obviously fill the vacancies throughout the province here in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is what we're concerned about, uh, to deliver on the contracts we have with the RCMP to provide policing to our mostly rural communities in this province. So uh, it's something that we've had conversations with uh, our assistant commissioner here in Newfoundland and Labrador about over the past year, year and a half. She's taken it very seriously. She's doing what she can on her part to recruit and retain uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians from across the country to come home to provide policing in their local community. So uh, it's an issue. Uh, it's on the agenda. It's a high priority, and we're working on it. So, yeah, but how do we as a province respond to that? Because if they're having trouble recruiting, yep. there's little we can do about it unless we change how we approach pr- policing in Newfoundland and Labrador, like expanding the, the role of the RNC, for instance. Is that something that's being contemplated? So, no, you're exactly right. I mean, we have a contract that policing needs to be provided. If the policing is not available, then the RCMP are unable to live up to the contracts, which means that policing services are not going to be able to be delivered uh, where the contracts apply in this province. So, you know, you did mention the RNC. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we made an announcement on the West Coast in the area of Pasadena and the Bay of Islands and Massey Drive to expand the jurisdiction of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary on the West Coast. Uh, part of what our new team was able to review was that there was some overlap uh, in that part of the province with the RNC and the RCMP, and by expanding RNC jurisdiction in that area, we could streamline public safety and policing in that part of the province. Um, you know, again, we don't uh, direct the RCMP or the RNC on their operations, but having freed up some jurisdiction and some patrols for the RCMP and not decreasing the RCMP budget, uh, we hope and anticipate that the RCMP will then have some additional resources that are not going to be used on the West Coast to hopefully allocate throughout other areas of the province. Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and everybody stay safe and pay attention to the weather. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And, uh, yeah, get that kit uh, in place now before you know that we're going to get something. (laughs) We hope we don't, but there's a good chance we're going to get something. So have that kit in place. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. We're going to go now to uh, Alan on line one. Hello, Alan. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Not too bad. I was just calling in there. Uh, I spoke with Patty Friday concerning my daughter. She has a golf on me set up. Okay. It's Chelsea Coombs, and she's in Montreal, and she started her clinical trials. And I just wanted to put it out there. We have a GoFundMe and the go, and since I spoke to Patty, now I have $30 given. But everything is a help. Uh, uh, I was just putting it out there, like the expenses $5,600 for a short-stay hotel per month. Uh, while Chelsea is there, we have the buy feed, which is $149 a case, which only lasts for four days. She has dressing, she has the buy, uh, 
taxis back and forth to the hospital for her treatment, which costs anywhere from thirty, forty dollars a day. I'll according which way the taxi takes them, I guess. Um, uh, so just yeah, wanted look, to put it out there. Her yeah. GoFundMe, uh, the the GoFundMe is GoFund.me forward slash three E as in Echo six C as in Charlie two three zero one. And we'd appreciate any help we could get because this determines Chelsea staying in Montreal for this treatment. I'm presently trying to get my house sold here. Uh, so we use the money for up there. Uh, that's not, you know, things are not the greatest with uh, interest rates and everything, and uh, so we're doing our best. But uh, a bit of help from the public would be nice, and we really appreciate it. So I was just calling to put it out there, like her GoFundMe again, and even if there was an organization who could help us, like set up a fund for the like take money and release it as we need it or because people are skeptical these days like with GoFundMe's and everything think they're scams and everything but this is no scam this is a young girl's life yeah, and if we could back up a little bit for anybody who may not have heard your call uh, last week, uh, your daughter ha- has been diagnosed with stage four tongue cancer. Is that correct? Squamous cell carcinoma. Yes, the worst cancer you could have on on the on the tongue, and yes. she's had a number of um, operations. I, I understand related to that, but it's metastasized. Metastasized to her lungs. Yes. Oh dear, oh dear. So um, she's gone to uh, Montreal for these clinical trials, which is, I guess, uh, another way of saying ex- experimental treatments to try and treat it? True. Yeah. Yes, that's it. And, like, even before that, my daughter was referred up to oncology there, and MTAP, uh, which is at a province medical transportation, they never covered nothing for us, and they still won't cover nothing, like, right now, because they're saying this is clinical trials. Uh the community supports nothing. They they don't cover nothing. They say it's uninsured medical, which you know treatment in Canada, uh, healthcare in Canada is supposed to be free, but uh, certain things I guess that just don't apply. No, indeed, especially when it comes to uh, cancer treatment and especially when it comes to, uh, I guess, new treatments that they're they're working on. Um, yeah. So how's how's uh, Chelsea doing right now? Uh, she's she's getting by she's having like you know feeling tired and stuff from the chemo she has another treatment tomorrow so this is going to be her second treatment uh i, I guess it takes it takes time like for everything to build up in your system plus she's had another medication makes her really tired and um she felt feels a little off like since she got her first chemo but not like not really sick, but you know not feeling well. No, for sure, it it, it takes the the good right out of you. Yeah. Um. Uh, when was she diagnosed? Uh, last July, and in that in September, I flew to Edmonton with her because when she seen the uh, the oncologist, uh, cancer doctor specialist here, they said they wanted to break her jaw, silence her chin to do the surgery and play the doll back together, which she would have some disfigurement. So I asked, I said, is me and my wife, we said, is there another way? 
and he said, yes, uh, robotic surgery. So we were referred to a doctor in Edmonton, and he did the robotic surgery. She was in surgery for 17 hours. She lost half her tongue and lymph nodes. Uh, we returned back to St. John's. She started radiation and chemo, and the, the radiation that has built up kind of really made her sick in that. And she's unable to eat, so she has a feed tube, and that's why we have to buy the feed. She has a gastric tube. She you goes through a case of, uh, complete every four days. Uh, and now that she's away, we can't get it, nothing covered. So we have to pay $149 a case for the feed. We had to buy all our dressings and all the tips for the feed tube. Is that right? How come that's not covered by MCP? Uh, they don't cover it because it's clinical trial, apparently. Oh, dear, oh, dear. So, yeah, your your family is in a very uh, desperate spot when it comes to trying to raise the funds to, to help yes. her with all of this. Yes, and like I've, I've checked with other organizations. One just said they don't want me to use their license, afraid they do an e-transfer online, and... I don't know, what to, and I'm waiting to hear back from uh, another one. They're, apparently, they're going to try and do something for me, uh, but I haven't heard nothing back yet. Uh, I spoke with a gentleman yesterday, and he said I would, will be hearing back from somebody, but uh, I never heard from nobody yet. I'd say the name, but I don't know if I'm allowed of the... Well, so you've got this GoFundMe, and you're encouraging people to... Uh, you know, make whatever donation they f- see fit. Um, so what's the name of the GoFundMe? Not necessarily the the address, but the name. Hang on, no, no, I'll tell you. Yeah. And the, the thing too, Linda, is uh, a lot of people don't have access to this or know how to use it. And uh, I'm trying to get there. Uh, it's Help Chelsea Beat Cancer. Help Chelsea Beat Cancer. Yeah, it's uh, Cancer Warrior Chelsea. Uh, heed her battle cry. Okay, so if somebody Googles that, they should find the GoFundMe page, and we'll we'll link it to any story we write about this. Yes, but the thing is, a lot of like I was saying, a lot of people don't have access, like to the GoFundMe. Don't know, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't use it, don't know how to use it. A lot of people don't even have a card or anything to probably make mm-hmm. a donation. Like, and if I had a, fa- a foundation or somebody helping me, that they could call them, make a donation. They could even release the money as we need it. And whatever is left there at the end of the day could go to help somebody else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Alan, we wish you and Chelsea and your family all the best. Um, and uh, anyone who c- sees it in their heart to uh, provide um, some help along the way because of all the uh, cost involved in these cr- clinical trials to help save her life, um, then uh, please do so. I-, I really appreciate your time, Alan. Yeah, and I appreciate your time, and I appreciate anybody that can help us, and God bless everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. We're going to go now to uh, Alex. You're on the air. Hi, Alex. Uh, Hi. How are you? Uh, Pretty good. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? I just wanted to put a little update on um, the amount of funds raised for my benefit concert for Nicole Carly. Oh, right. Yeah, how'd it go? It went really well. A large crowd. 
awesome performances. Yeah. Yeah, super. So uh, um, did you manage to raise a lot of money? Yes, we raised uh, $1,700, and that will all be going to Nicole. Fantastic. So have you been in contact with her? How's she doing? Uh, All by my knowledge is she's on the road to recovery. And, yeah, I'd like to thank everyone at VOCM and everyone who was supporting me along the way, too. Well, I appreciate that, Alex. And for anybody who may not know, Nicole Kylie, of course, Deputy Mayor of Mount Pearl, involved in that uh, uh, terrible crash uh, at Shoppers Drug Mart on Lamarchant Road earlier in the summer. Uh, she um, was uh, leaving the store, I understand, or just outside the store, and uh, a vehicle, unfortunately, uh, um, struck her and crashed through the front of the, the store. A very devastating uh, incident. And she was trapped under that vehicle for a, a period of time and is since recovering from the injury suffered in that uh, terrible incident. Yeah. Uh, so, Alex, uh, all the best to you now. Thanks so much for uh, giving us an update. Yes, and thank you all of you, Sam, for letting me shout this out and everything. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Um, we are going to go now to the Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government with the federal government, uh, Michael Barrett. Hello, Michael. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. That's, where are you calling us from? I'm in Brockville, Ontario today. Oh, very good. What's it like up there now? Uh, uh, you know, a little cool this morning, about uh, 19 degrees, but, um, uh, you know, by summer standards, but uh, sunny day, no complaints. Oh, good to hear. What brings you to us today? Um, well, we're, we're celebrating uh, an anniversary that's not one worth celebrating, and that's six months since uh, Justin Trudeau um, has uh, has failed to appoint an ethics commissioner. We've had a, a law in the books in Canada requiring an ethics commissioner since 2007. And the one we had, Mario Dion, resigned uh, in in February. And uh, in the intervening period, the government uh, had briefly appointed the sister-in-law of uh, one of uh, the prime minister's cabinet ministers. But that didn't uh, last very long because uh, you know, because we pointed out that uh, the sister-in-law of a cabinet minister who had been found to have broken these ethics laws ought not to have to hold that position. So, um, you know, six months uh, where, uh, you know, the prime minister who's been found guilty twice himself of breaking ethics laws by an ethics commissioner, um, where that position's been vacant. And obviously, uh, you know, we're identifying that as a concern because, you know, it's important that, uh, you know, everyone uh, from coast to coast can have confidence in um, what our politicians are doing in Ottawa, knowing that everything's above board. There's no uh, preferential treatment being given to friends, families, insiders and the like. And um, and we've seen that as a bit of a trend with the current government. The, the last ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, one of his um, final instructions to the government was that uh, all of the uh, all of the, the liberal members should take remedial ethics training. So get um, coached up on uh, how to follow the rules. And not only has that not been done, there's no commissioner now in place to uh, to follow up to make sure that the rules are being followed. So how long do these uh, processes typically take to uh, replace a position like ethics commissioner? Well, the government has the ability to appoint uh, an interim uh, 
commissioner, and that can be for up to six months. But, you, you know, we're looking at six months as kind of the the outside limit, The uh, which would bring us to the end of uh, September for the interim position, but there isn't a commissioner that's been serving in the interim. The challenge that we're going to see in trying to find someone, the, the credentials required for this job are are um, quite specific, looking for people um, of the like who've served as federal judges, for example. But, um, and, and this is interesting, uh, I would say, to offer that uh, as a criticism, but um, the government cut the salary by a third for the next commissioner. Now, normally, if uh, a government cuts spending, I'd be the first to say, well, this is good news, but uh, this is the only area that they found any any savings, and it's to cut the salary by $110,000 of uh, the person that is is uh, whose job is to investigate uh, whose job is to investigate the prime minister and the cabinet. So tough to get someone who was making the salary of a federal judge to take a $110,000 pay cut uh, to investigate the prime minister. So. Um, so that's going to lengthen the process, and we think you know uh, that's potentially an, an an intentional effect that they're looking to have to slow it down. So, what has been the um, uh, government's response to this um, delay in in getting a uh, a new appointment there? Well, they're not too concerned about it because you know usually this the person filling this position creates uh, noise and headaches for the government. Most recently, the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister was found guilty of breaking the ethics act, and um, and as I said, he's had the same uh, problem with several of his ministers and with himself. So, um, uh, you know, I imagine they're quite content to not fill the spot. Uh, and that's why we're taking the opportunity just to uh, to remind them and to remind Canadians that, um, you know, we're keeping track and uh, uh, keeping tabs on what the government's doing. But, of course, it's essential, regardless of who holds government, uh, that we have independent officers of parliament checking to make sure that all the rules are being followed, because, um, you know, it's uh, it's not a uh, country that belongs to one party or another. It, it belongs to Canadians. And uh, we need to make sure that people have confidence that whoever's in charge in Ottawa is, uh, is following the rules. And uh, today, uh, the ability to appoint that commissioner rests with, um, with Mr. Trudeau. And we're looking for him to fulfill his obligation to, to appoint a commissioner so that Canadians can have confidence in their democratic institutions. Federal opposition critic for ethics and accountable government, uh, Michael Barrett, calling from Brockville, Ontario. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for the chat. Enjoy the day. All righty. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a very short break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to speak about uh, cell service in rural Newfoundland and Labrador coming up right after this. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We're going to go now to uh, Hearts Content Town Councillor Tolson Rendell. Hello, Tolson. Yes, good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm great. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Linda, I've had a lot on my mind lately about different things, and I want to make one thing quite clear to the public and to the world, really. It's the first uh, cable wasn't landed in Hearts Content. It was landed in Bay of Bull's Arm, now Sunnyside. That's right, yeah. you heard on the news here, it's only August 5th. They celebrated. They're starting to have an anniversary there. I think they had their first, which was 165 years ago. 
on August, uh, you know, the cable landed up there. Right. And Hearts Content, eight years later after that failed, that was landed August 5th to October the 20th, uh, 1858. And then after that failed, there was eight years in between before they got a ship large enough to take the entire cable from Valencia to come to Hearts Content and make it what I call the first successful transatlantic The first cable. successful, and that's a exactly successful right. Successful is a really big word. The, um, the mighty Great Eastern. Yes, she was just a, an extraordinary well, actually, right vessel. Where live, right where I live in Heart's Content, I'm looking at the window now. I can picture in my mind up across the harbor. There is a picture up the cable station. And by the way, did you ever visit the cable station? Oh my God, many times. Yes. Is that right? It's uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing feat. Uh, again, we're into as you know UNESCO now and trying to get a, it become a UNESCO site in, in in years to come. Probably another four or five years it'll take, but. I mean, for anyone that hasn't been there, uh, like I, you know, in 2016, we had 150th anniversary. Uh, it was an amazing situation, and people were here from practically all over the world. Uh, it's an amazing place to go to visit. It's Absolutely fascinating, and it, it, it connects us all. I mean, we wouldn't be on the radio today if it wasn't for that. Exactly. exactly. You know, in a lot it's of ways, because you wouldn't but, be able to call me. I wouldn't be able to speak with you over the phone. It's just extraordinary. But that's where I want to get back to this cell phone thing. I mean, I've been involved with the uh, council since uh, the early 2000s and before, really, to trying to get there. But, I mean, it's like I said to Bill Rowe and, um, you know, Baz James and Naughty Four gone older people in, in, uh, you know, the VOCM open line shows that, you know, communication is a big thing. We don't realize where it's going. And it's a life and death situation without a cell phone. Absolutely essential nowadays. Absolutely essential. Right. We need it. And, I mean, they're after setting up two towers, uh, communication towers, one up the, what I call the Hearts Desire Road out of Hearts Content, and another one down on Melbourne Ridge. There's no reason why we can't have excellent cell phone coverage in this area if they were connected right. Yeah, absolutely. Have you uh, encountered cell difficulties in your region in Trinity Bay? Oh, my God, yes, and over the years. But now there are spots in Hearts Content. You can, like, out by the lighthouse and, and, and up by Legs Restaurant, you have what you call little mini, mini, cell, mini cell towers or whatever, and it helps spread it around. But we need, like, I'll give you an example. Like I said to Bill Rowe one time on Open Line. If you went into a gas bar, say, on Topsail Road, just say a Golden Eagle station or Ultramar station, if you wanted to get $30 worth of gas and you only end up with 20 would you be happy? Yeah, absolutely not. You would not. Well, the same with your cell phone coverage. You're not happy. You shouldn't be happy because you're not getting your full volume of what you're paying for. Yeah, right? for you sure. Point? So, no, I, I, I'd urge governments and, uh, you know, all the, the big, big companies like Bell and Rogers and TELUS, why can't, you know, if you're selling a product or if you're pushing a product, have it right. Don't have it wrong. And it's easy to make it right if you've got the towers to do it. Supposing i got to buy off you and you got to buy off me. Make it right for your, for your population you're, you're serving. Yeah. Right? No, I just figured I'd throw it out there again today, and I'm hoping something's coming out of it. Like I said, there's a, an awful lot of tourists around here the year from practically all over the world. And I was on the way to Old Partington Hospital the other evening uh, with a buddy of mine, and I happened to be going down into New Melbourne, which is down the shore here, further down toward uh, Old Partington, and the the rainbow was right up, in, you know, out over New Melbourne, out over the bay there. And there was this car stopped, and I happened to have a glance, and you know what the license plate was on it? What's that? Florida. 
Wow, just imagine. It was un- unbelievable. But Linda made her, the tourists are here from everywhere, and not only do they need cell phone coverage, but everybody basically in the world needs cell phone coverage at this day and age. Absolutely. Well, Tolson, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thanks so much. And you take care and all the best. If you're ever out, um, I'd look you up and take you for a tour around town. There you go. I go into legs every now and again for me lunch. Robert Hing. Right on. All right, take care. Thanks. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Uh, Tolson Rendell there, uh, town councillor with the town of Hearts Content. Some of the cleanest bathrooms I've ever seen in my life are at that cable station. Just gleaming. Take my word for it. Uh, we are going to go now to Peggy. You're on the air. Hi, Peggy. Hi. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. What about you? Oh, good. Wonderful. Uh, I want to talk uh, today about um, the hospital situation, like the the waiting times and, oh, my goodness, our mom is in the hospital. She fell. She was living in a personal care home. And she fell one morning, which is four months ago, and they had to take her to the hospital to get her checked out. And she had a bump on her head, no bones broken. She's 90 years old, but they kept her in the hospital. They said it was going to be two or three days to uh, uh, keep an eye on this bump, you know. And it's four months later, and they put her in the bed, and for three months, they never took her out. And so you can imagine what her strength is like now. So wait a minute. She she had a bump on her head. They wanted to keep her in for observation. How is she still there months later? Well, this is what we don't know. We don't. Even the doctor talked to her last week, and they said, why are you still here? You should be out walking. But they left her in the bed. Oh, this is the truth. It's it's so devastating because our mom was like going to her meals herself in a personal care home and using her walker. But my brother, he keeps saying, I used to have to keep a, a fast pace to walk with her on her way to her meals, like when he would be visiting her. Did she lose and her spot like, in the personal care home or does she require uh, a higher level of care and there's no, no bed available? No, What's no. going on? No, she's, well, she probably won't get back there anymore because now where she's been kept in bed so long, she doesn't have any strength. So one of my sisters has been really, really pushing it, and she has, they have taken her out, like, and puts her in a chair and gets her moved. But, I mean, it's just unreal, like, what has gone on. And two weeks ago, and I was going to back up and say, like, most of our family lives out of the province. So it's really hard for, you know, for everyone to be keeping an eye on her. Like, I'm six hours away. My husband has cancer. I can't be there, like, you know, like I'd like to be. But one of my sisters was there two weeks ago, and she pulled back the clothes. She was going to put some cream on Mom's feet and you know, pamper a bit. And when she pulled back the cover, she said the smell was that bad that she just, she almost gagged. And she pulled off mom's socks and what she saw, my dear, I got a picture. It is the grossest thing. The skin is hanging off. The toenails are long. It's just gross. And then she started cleaning her feet and in between her toes, and so she went and got a nurse and explained what and she said. She just like, oh, like, you know, and my sister said, 
Uh, yeah, because a hospital is not going to provide that level of personal care. Uh, I guess they rely on families to do that. And if your family is spread to the four winds like most of us these days, how on earth is she going to get the care that she needs? And the thing was, like, she, the nurse said, well, we can't cut her toenails because she's a diabetic. And I find that hard to believe. This is nurses. Like, you know, can't cut her toenails. So we found out that she's supposed to have foot care that someone comes in that mom has to pay for. I don't get it. She's a patient of the hospital. And why would you have to pay, why would she have to pay someone to cut her toenails I can't understand it. Like, you know, what is the problem? And what about the dirt between our toes? Like, I'm sure you don't need someone to come in and do that. Wow, that's uh, that's an extraordinary circumstance. Uh, it is, it is. And honest to God, when... So when when I is she getting it, out? Any word? Like, what are you being told? Well, in the last uh, uh, two or three weeks, they do take her out every now and then, sits her in a chair. And that is good, but, I mean, the chances of our mother walking again because of neglect, left in the bed, not getting out, and she is she has some dementia, but she is so with it. Like, she, she has seven children. She knows us all. Like, you know, it's not like she's a vegetable. She's there and don't know what's going on. And she keeps saying, why am I still in this bed? It's just been... Uh, ridiculous like you know we just don't understand what is what is going on that you would do this to a human being like our feet are so dirty I mean I don't believe that you've got to pay someone to come in and wash between our toes like and, and you haven't had any satisfaction with the hospital um you know a patient uh, complaint I guess line so to speak mm no not really my i have one sister that's really working on that kind of thing because we didn't all want to get involved and make it you know there's seven of us but it is very frustrating to watch what's happening to our mother like you know she went in there walking going to the bathroom herself and well when you're in a personal care you've got to be able to do all that right right and now to see her deteriorate to that level for no reason that you can see She's uh, wasting away in the bed, honestly. Yeah. Peggy, un- unfortunately, we have to leave it there. We're well overdue for the news. But uh, I okay. do appreciate you raising the issue, and maybe we'll get some answers. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you for listening. Alrighty. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, frustrating indeed for a family uh, not getting, according to Peggy's uh, account, uh, the answers that they need in that regard. Uh, when we come back after the news, we'll get an update on the rally coming up tomorrow at Confederation Building. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to uh, Tina Olivero. Hello, Tina. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, joining us. We were speaking with Ruby uh, this morning, who has, uh, I guess, um, is sharing, uh, carrying that torch with you, uh, having lost someone to addiction as well. Um, How are things going in terms of uh, planning for tomorrow's rally? 
Thanks for asking and having me. Tomorrow is going great. We have, I think, 2,500 people on the Ben's Law page. And on that page, we create an event. And we have, so far, I think we've got hundreds of people confirmed at this point. So it's going fantastic. I don't think it's, it's just about one person. Obviously, it's affecting every single person in the province. So this has now become a movement, not just a rally. Why do you suppose it's taken this type of, uh, I mean, a personal crisis for you, but why do you suppose it's come to this level before we see this this rallying of people? Because I, I, I think all of us have been seeing this happening over the last, in, in particular, I would say, three to five years. Yeah, that's a really smart question. Um, I think I'm going to take the analogy, um, like the gentleman who spoke before about the car. Like, if you are going to take your car into a mechanic who's never owned a car, um, would you feel secure in doing so? And our system is built that way. The people who have the most knowledge about addiction and mental health issues are the people who suffer from it. And next to them are the parents who take care of them and the family and loved ones who take care of them. So our whole structure and our, our organization, and I sat on with a group of parents for lived experience as an advisor to the system, and we didn't move the needle for two years. So what's missing is that all of these systems, justice, social services, and health services, are being creating programs without actually being those people. They're not the people with mental health and addiction. Some are, but the majority are not. And they're not the parents and families with mental health and addiction. Those are the people who have the direct lived experience that should drive this whole entire initiative and should be advising the province, not the other way around, like the province and the ministers, et cetera, setting up programs. It should be the people who are actually affected, who have the knowledge, who have the lived experience. These are not necessarily people with any type of education. It's people who understand and exactly know what to do and how to get ahead of it because you know addiction is ruthless and people are super super smart and you have to sort of if you're someone who has addiction and and you have anastignosia and you don't even realize that you're sick you're not going to ask for help so the only person who can then help you is your your family member who's trying to help you there's all these little things that are breakdowns in the system that people in addiction and people who have recovered from addiction have the answers to so uh, what did you encounter any trouble advocating on Ben's behalf, um, you know, as a teenager or when you saw, you know, the depths uh, to which he was uh, suffering? At every juncture from the moment Ben, I saw Ben have trouble with uh, pot. He had pot, uh, pot addiction. I brought him straight to a rehab center at 15. He came out much worse with no diagnosis whatsoever. From there, he went on. Like Ben had anosognosia. He could not self-reflect. He did not have cause and effect. You could tell Ben, we're going for an ice cream or you're going to jail. Even when Ben went to jail, he had like, I don't know how many missed court dates, which is the reason for going, and a small um, death charge, which is the case with all of these people with underlying mental health and addictions. So we don't have at the point of the justice system, even though I begged for the judge to help Ben and get him medical help, I begged social services not to put Ben 
um, not to allow Ben at the age of 16 to live in drug homes that they, that our taxpayers paid for. I begged the health system over and over again as I tried to bring him to the Janeway. I have case after case, and that's me. I fought for Ben for six years up until the moment he died, even with the police force. And so I have about, I've heard from over 800 mothers now in the exact same place and dads um, who are, who've gone through exactly what I have and have had juncture after juncture. Oh, you're, you know, your son says that he's perfectly fine. He sounds well, he looks well, he must be well. Meanwhile, he's got, you know, he can't even show up to court on the right day. He, he's, his life is a shambles. He's living on the street. I mean, it's not rocket science. We're all hiding behind the privacy law. Oh, it's his right to choose according to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. People don't choose addiction. Addiction is the most ruthless terrible illness and people are people who are in addiction are already in jail like we have to we have to be two steps ahead of people in addiction in order to solve that and we have to rely on people who have recovered to show us the way and we're not doing that so you're you're saying this is um you know changes in the law that have um rendered i guess the efforts of uh, family members to advocate on behalf of their uh grown or adult um you know loved ones um, yeah. whether it be mental health or or addictions i know i i encountered a, a a situation on my street years ago now where a gentleman um had uh, had a mental health crisis and uh, learned subsequently that the family had been advocating to keep him in the hospital for ever so long and he said no i feel fine and they let him out and um you know he had nowhere to go um so is that part of the problem that's very very typical ben was at a shelter on 150 lamarchant road and he was in the most horrific circumstances nine men to a room terrible things happening there and then one day he found a man who was hanging from the side of the building we don't hear this in the news but ben found him and the night i was talking to his sister on sunday the the night before they took him to waterford and even twice and even though he said to the people there that he was going to commit suicide he was turned away and he went back to the shelter and he hung himself and Ben found him. And this is what we're dealing with every day, like the systemic fallout from not admitting people who are sick and having them determine whether or not they're healthy, even when people are asking for help. You know, Ben Ben most likely but was never diagnosed with bipolar. He has it on his dad's side. He has it on my side. So he had this underlying illness that never once was tested, never once was looked at to see if he has anastognosia, which is in 40% of mental health patients, which is the inability to self-reflect. And that's the reason for all the fallout. So we have to admit people when they go to the, to the hospital. We have to test and admit and diagnose. We have to test, admit, and diagnose through social services and also the judicial system. That's what's missing. And... Our people with lived experience are not driving this. Forget about all the people in, you know, leadership positions and what they think and how would they, what kind of, you know, uh, facilities they think we need. 
it doesn't matter what they think. What matters is the people who have recovered from addiction tell us what you think, which is why I'm, I want to build healing homes, because people need to be environment, in an environment without other addicts. Ben was in a shelter with 25 other men and horrific things happening. That's when he picked up needles and ultimately took his life. Uh, it, it's such a sad testament to where we are right now. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure nobody wants to see the kind of um, institutionalization that uh, we're familiar with from, you know, the Victorian age, that kind of thing. But there's no doubt there are people who um, need that help um, long term. Um, hopefully they're not very many, but uh, who need that long-term help and support uh, to, you know, um, stay well. And w- yeah. we just are hearing story after story after story of people who are, for all intents and purposes, left to their own devices, and they can't cope. I can't believe Ben actually survived for 60 60- six years because he was out on the streets and I would have to go look for him day in, day out. And I would have to be able to, I would find him midwinter with no coat on and being in horrific places. He witnessed two murders, uh, one right on the steps of uh, Thereby Choices. And he, as a young boy from 16 to 20, when he lost his life, he, he saw more in his lifetime than anybody should ever have to see. And that's a result of social services putting Ben in the place in drug homes and listening to him say, you know, I'm fine. This is what I choose because he didn't have the capacity to choose properly for himself. Oh, my. So, So, Tina, the rally tomorrow, 2 o'clock at Confederation Building, that's correct? That's the correct time. Yeah, we have so many people writing in and so many parents and concerns because they're starting to feel a sense of like something's actually going to change, something's actually going to move this time. And it's going to, this is something that affects every single one of us. Like it's not the judicial, social services or health system fault. These are laws that need to change. And we all have something in common and that we is that we all want this fixed and we none of us want our kids to die so it's not an us or them situation this is a peaceful and powerful rally where all people are coming together voices for our kids and our loved ones with mental health to be able to express our concern and say we got to turn this around people who have recovered from addiction need to start running things family needs to be in the circle of care and we need to fix it at every touch point so that diagnosed as is immediate at every every juncture and people actually get the help they need and there's no waiting times like you know six weeks to get into hover wood that kind of thing no we need we need a very state-of-the-art rehab facility right here in st john's and these are the things that we're going to be asking for and advocating for and and we, you know we're going to have ministers there um addressing the situation and we're asking for we don't want to know what happened in the past we want to know what are the solutions for the future and we want firm commitments and we're going to um, make sure that no matter what that comes into play tina olivero uh all the best with the rally tomorrow two o'clock rain or shine confederation building appreciate your time thank you so much for having me all right Bye-bye. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with uh, St. John City Councillor Jamie Korab. We're going to talk about traffic calming when we come back right after this. And we're back. We're going to go now to St. John City Councillor Jamie Korab. Hello. 
Good morning, Linda. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. So uh, traffic calming, it's something uh, I mentioned off the top of the show because I noticed some of the measures they've been putting in place in Paradise, but the city of St. John's has been dealing with that for some time. What kind of things have you been doing? Yeah, so my main reason to call today was to kind of give an update on one of the traffic calming uh, events that are happening in my area. But, you know, just off the top to answer your question, you know, traffic and traffic calming and speeding is the number one request, number one issue I hear from residents. It's above uh, snow clearing, it's above potholes, it's above anything else. So, you know, that just goes to show that kind of the gravity of what we're dealing with. So. That's first off. Uh, like I said, the main reason is we had four permanent traffic calming um, installations this year. There was the Kitty Vitty in front of Belden's, uh, Ennis Avenue, the lower part of Southside Road, close to the Vide up there that's getting worked on, uh, and the, the small section by University Avenue by the school, and as well Craig Miller Avenue. So that's one in Ward 3. Um, so that should be started in the next week or two, uh, completed end of August, early September, because one of the things that traffic calming does do, um, and you, you can look at Old Topsail Road in my ward, that was done long before my time on council, is that did stop people from using Old Topsail Road, but it pushed them down to Waterbridge Road and Craig Miller. So now we do Craig Miller. Hopefully the traffic will go where we want them to go, which is the arterials, which is their minor arterials, which is uh, Topsail Road and Cornwall Avenue or Waterbridge Road. So, yeah, so they will be done, but traffic calming is the number one thing we hear from residents, no question. And uh, when these measures are put in place, do they have the desired effect? Yeah, no question that they, they do have desired effect. They do, you know, there's a number of reasons we put the traffic calming in, but they, they do stop traffic from going. And, and I can say firsthand, someone that lived in Cowan Heights, I used to always take old tops of the road when I went downtown. They put in a traffic uh, speed cushions, the bump outs, I stopped using it. Uh, Frecker Drive, they currently have temporary ones there now. Uh, that could be made permanent depending on residential feedback because residents do have a say whether they become permanent. Uh, the other day I was going, going to the west part of Cowan Heights and I was about to turn down Frecker and I said, nope, speed cushions, I went down to Canada. So it, it, they, they no question they do, but the, you know they do have some adverse effects as they do push people to other streets and uh, you know depending, they can slow emergency vehicles down. So there is some some a little bit of negative with putting them in, but you know by and large people are usually pretty receptive and like them because it does slow cars down. And how do the permanent uh, solutions to uh, traffic calming uh, affect things in the wintertime, like snow clearing? Yeah, so those definitely, yeah, and that's the other part. It does slow down the... the our uh, snow clearing equipment no question you know we get you know um, almost 400 centimeters a year i think it's like 350 centimeters a year which is you know double what some places in ontario and alberta get per season so it does slow that down as well the temporary ones naturally that are down at Frecker drive and other places will be removed prior to the winter um but yeah so it does cause a little but the way that they're shaped um you know the, the blades can go over it but uh, it does slow them down a little bit no question so you said it, it, you know, while it is slowing traffic that uses the roads down, it's having the alternate effect of moving people into other, onto other routes. Yeah, the, the cars have to go somewhere. But, you know, ideally, one of the reasons for traffic calming is the slow cars down that are on those streets. But, you know, ideally, we want people using the arterials or the collector roads. Um, you know, we don't want people saying, I'll just take Cowan Heights where I live. We don't want people cutting through a drive, like Harrington Drive, for argument's sake. We want them using, you know, Black Marsh Road, Canada Drive, roads like that, Topsail Road. Um, so, yeah, but the cars have to go somewhere. But ideally, you want them going through roads that are designed, whether it be with, um, you know, the speed limits can handle the traffic volume and whatnot. So that's that's one of the other reasons they do it as well. Carrick Drive is a great example in the East End. 
that was a major shortcut to get up to Stefango Drive. Uh, once they put the speed cushions in there, that forced people to take the Logie Bay Road, which is a double lane road, or Thorburn Road, or sorry, uh, Torbay Road, which is a double road. So that did have the desired effect because that was, you know, there was no other way to get up to Stefango Drive other than those areas. Any other areas you're looking at now? Yeah, so there's, well, Frecker Drive is one area. There's, so we just changed the policy actually in 2013. And uh, because, again, with, with the amount of requests we're getting from residents, we want to make sure we had an updated policy. And, you know, our staff do a fantastic job with this. You know, one of the, they use this uh, TAC manual, I believe it's the Transportation Association of Canada manual for uniform traffic design. And, you know, one of the things we did with updating it, it is resident-driven. Residents are usually the one request the to have a traffic calming done. And there's a, uh, you know, to address the street, there's a priority order based on the set criteria, whether it's eligible or not. And, you know, if anyone is curious about in St. John's, uh, on our website, if you go, just even Google St. John's traffic calming, um, there's a full process and policy laid out. And, you know, we encourage residents first to reach out to city staff or your counselor to see if your street even qualifies. Because right now, take for instance, Waterford Ridge Road is a minor arterial. It doesn't qualify for traffic calming. Uh, now, that's something I'm working on because there is a lot of traffic down there, but that's kind of a side And it's very narrow in places, very narrow. It is. Now, one thing with narrow, it does slow cars down, um, and that's something staff had said. If you take Canada Drive in Cowan Heights, you could be doing 60 on that. You're speeding, but you don't feel you're doing 60. If you did 60 on Waterford Drive down by the cemetery, you know you're doing, you're going fast because things are naturally passing by you quicker. But with, with this new policy... Um, you know, you want to make sure your street firstly qualifies for it. And then if it does, then essentially um, staff, you need a petition um, to get signed and you need about 25% of homes on that street in favor. Old um, way, if you want to try the comedy, you'd email a counselor or the access center 311 and staff will go out and assess. And they were doing lots of assessments. So to make sure it was something that was actually needed. So now you go for 25%. I won't go through the full flow chart, but essentially 25% of the households, staff will go collect the data find out if it is warranted if it is warranted then your street could qualify for a temporary traffic calming which is again what a street like Brecker drive has this year and then once that's done we go back and pull the residents and 60 percent of the residents on the street then would need to want traffic calming because not everyone wants traffic calming. they want traffic calming until the traffic calming gets installed and the speed bumps in front of the house and then they don't necessarily want it then so it is a bit of a balancing act for staff for sure. Uh, Councillor Jamie Korab, we're up to news time now, but I do appreciate this uh, uh, little insight into, um, you know, the kinds of things that municipalities uh, have to contemplate. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the last thing I'll say is, you know, all the information for the city is on our website and other municipalities. Look, I, I know from talking to CBS, Mount Pearl Paradise, it's a concern we all have. The municipalities are working hard on it, and it's something we are, you know, looking to the RNC as well because they have a major role to play in ticketing. When I was a teenager, I started slowing down, not because of speed bumps. It's because the RNC were out or the, you know, RCMP. So it's a role for both municipal and provincial to play. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And very quickly now, we're going to go to Gerald before the news because he has a bit of a, a traffic update for us. What's going on, Gerald? Uh, good morning. Uh, just east of the Bull Arm intersection, uh, west of Arnold's Grove, there's uh, an ambulance pulled to the side there and traffic services is there. Uh, traffic needs to uh, slow in, the motoring public. Uh, there's heavy rain in the area. There's quite a water build up on the highway. Traffic is coming in there. Uh, there's a passing lane, but they're approaching it too fast. Be aware of flashing lights 
and slow in and prevent an, uh, an accident. Uh, just just for motoring public there in that area, please be aware. Hopefully it won't continue there. It'll be taken care of quickly, but it's right on a sharp turn, so please be aware. Absolutely. Is that an accident that you know of? No, it doesn't appear to be an accident. It's just something that's happened. I'm in the traffic here, pulled over near the Arnold Scove overpass. I came through there, but there's traffic approaching that area too fast. Uh, you're not seeing the lights till you're right up into the turn. Hopefully now there's probably some place on scene there to uh, take care of the fast approaching traffic in that area. There was an accident there only a, a week or so ago in that same area. So just just to the traveling public, please be aware. Slow in in the Bull Arm, Arnold's Cove intersection area until this is taken care of. Really appreciate that, Gerald. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now with Jolene Grimes. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Just a reminder of that traffic slowdown just east of the Bull Arm intersection. Uh, heavy rain in the area. It's on a turn, so uh, please be aware of that as you're approaching the area. And... Uh, we can avoid an accident until that's um, cleared up for sure. We, um, oh, I was going to go to another caller about uh, another quick situation, but uh, we will uh, move on now. Uh, Donna is on the air. Hi, Donna. Hi, Donna. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, calling about mental health and addictions and a lack of it. Um I lost my son the twenty ninth the twenty eighth of April. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. At the age of twenty nine, my only child. And it was a lack, a big lack of like he was sent home from work because he couldn't focus. He had a good job down in Bosley Bay. So he was sent home from work. He went to the hospital in Central, uh, not in Grand Falls, another hospital. And uh, the 13th, and told him everything. Told a doctor, not a mental health nurse, because there was no one there for to talk to him about that. So she wouldn't just stop these medications and said, "Well, do counseling." After two weeks prior to this visit, he tried to hang himself and told them three times in that visit. And he said, "Are you hearing what I'm saying?" He said. Like, he needed help. He went there crying for help. He couldn't focus his job down in Boise Bay. He couldn't focus. He couldn't do his job. He was an area duty mechanic, operator. And um, and it was just, it was just no compassion there for him. He was just medication, counseling. He said, I'll do the counseling, but it's not going to work. Like, he needed mental health. Help. When and you when you say that, what was he asking for? Like to be admitted, to be treated? I mean, one, he wanted in like he wanted to be admitted, but he wasn't asked to be admitted. He, like to, to change the medication for one, it, it just don't work like that. There, he's supposed to be either put in and you know regulate this medication and whatever, but no, nothing, nothing like that. He wasn't uh, sent to talk to a mental health nurse. He was just talking to a doctor. Uh, knowing that he just tried to take his life two weeks prior, he still had the rings on his neck. 
and and to be sent into that hospital, like it don't make sense. So what uh, it, constitutes then a mental health emergency? I wonder. Exactly. There you go. How much more did it, like for him to go in there and he had an addiction and he said he needed to be treated. He wanted to go on this this whatever the I don't know the name, but Suroxone or whatever it's called. And then she said, well, it's three or four different steps before you can go on that. Now, how much more do you need? There he was hanging off a rope, wanted to be to get cleaned up so he can go and do his job properly. But, you know, I guess craving, I don't know. I, I never ever done drugs, but you know what I mean? Like, and send him home. And on the 28th of April, he was gone. So, what happened for him, you know, in his life to what kind of a journey did he take towards, you know, this crisis situation? He worked ever since he was 18. He always had a job. He got out of high school. He went to school and got his heavy equipment operator. But he kept, I used to go to my doctor, like my appointments, and I would cry to her saying, I need you to check my son. I know he got ADHD and he needs to be tested. And it was just put from 2016 on, which got just pushed and pushed and forgot about. She said, bring in, make an appointment for him, she said, and, we're, and she'll go in and put him on a different medication. Not for ADHD, for anxiety, depression, all that, I guess, but... He just had a, a totally chemo, chemical imbalance in his head, and he knew it, and he couldn't get no help. He just couldn't get no help, and I guess he just could not take it no more. But oh. the boat here on the 13th of April, wanting help, and it was two steps, admit, treat. That's all he needed. That's all he needed to do, admit him and treat him. But, no, he was sent home, and the... The 28th of April, he hung himself in his garage. He just bought a house. He just bought a house towards Spelling Gate. And uh, down, everything down. Oh, my God. Because of lack of services. Like, that that doctor should have sent him. If it wasn't no one on duty that day, a mental health nurse, he should have been sent to Grand Falls. Or call me. Call his mother. I'm his next of kin. You know what I mean? Not send him on his way knowing that he couldn't cope with life no more. And he told her everything. Everything that was happening in his life. So, Donna, you're in central Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, and there's a rally at Confederation Building tomorrow. If you could be there, what message would you send to government? We need more services. This is nothing out there. There's no services there for the, our children. They're dying every day. What's going on? Like, I, I don't, like, Linda, I would not be able to come on this open line and talk like I'm doing, but I got to fight for my son. My son, his name is Michael Dalton. And I, I got to fight. I would never be able to call on this program because I'm just not that type of person. I'm like, you know. And he, he asking for help. Asking. He went there and said and was told, told him three times that he was just, his girlfriend cut him off the rope. 
he was gone. But when he hit the floor, he must have jolted his heart or done something. And he come, she got him back. But the 28, she tried to revive him, but he was gone. It was too late. Oh, my. And when you get a call at 8 o'clock in the morning and... And the the lady said, uh, can you come to Twilling? I goes, well, what's wrong with Michael? And she said, can you come in? I said, well, it's an hour and something for me to get out there, an hour and a half to get there. I said, can you just put me in the hamlets and I'll meet him at the hospital? She said, no, my love, Michael's gone. And that's it. That's all I remember. And I was alone. My husband was just flying in from work, from Boise back. So there I was. A full hour sitting to my table telling myself to wake up from this nightmare. Like pinching myself, trying to wake up, thinking this was like I was still, uh, I was dreaming. My only son, my only son that was crying for help. Like, it's just, it's just terrible. There's a lack and a big lack of services. And I'm after airing. That many horror stories of children that took their lives because of lack of services. What's going on? They're spending millions of dollars on other, uh, billions of dollars sending it to other countries. And here we are. Our children are suffering from addictions and can't get help. There's no place even to go. We got a place in Central, but yours is 18 and under to get in there. Where are we supposed to go? Where was he supposed to go if he wanted to go in somewhere and get treated? He's nowhere here. Donna, uh, uh, I'm so sorry to hear what happened to you and your family, and I'm so glad that you had the strength this morning to give us a call and and share your story. Um, The rally is tomorrow at 2 o'clock at Confederation Building. Hopefully uh, the collective voices of family members who have been through these terrible, terrible circumstances will be heard. I I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Linda, for taking my call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, and we'll be back right after this. Uh, by the way, we had uh, a really busy day on the show with lots of calls coming in. A few people dropped off, maybe thinking it's towards the end of the show now. Now is the chance, that, and it always happens. So now is your chance to get on, by the way. Our, our lines have loosened up. Here's the numbers to call. And we're back. We're going to go now to Roger. Hello, Roger. Uh, good day. How are you? Uh, good. That's I was listening to your callers where you're talking about there's no help for people that's on drugs or different things that's killing them and hurting them. And uh, what I want to say, we really need help. We really do. I I had two friends here, lost their sons recently through that uh, drug problem, overdosing. Right? So it's all over. Two people that you know personally. Two people I know personally, yeah. Like, I know their dad's really good, and uh, they were... Their children, right? But it's like it's heartbreaking to see this happen to people who are so simple that they could spend a few dollars that way instead of giving it to the haul companies or gas companies, wherever you want to call them, and give it to people to help your people that's here in Newfoundland and Labrador that needs help, and there's a way to do it. And just uh, the Liberal government never done nothing for for anybody, as far as I'm concerned. Started with Joey Smollett, and he made people move out of places they love. 
And I was one of them that was forced to have a place that we lived from until we smuggled back in the years. Right? So since that, I've seen the Liberal government, that's all they've done is took a look at uh, Trudeau's father. What did he do? Turn everything into military costs of fortune. Never didn't think about trying to help the people that need to be helped. Just had to spend another fortune changing signs and containers and everything else. And now Trudeau's doing the same thing. I don't know where to go to, my dear, with this life. You just have to put up with, I guess, what people boast for, that's what he boasts for. So how how would this um, situation that we've been talking about this morning and and are going to continue to talk about for some time to come um, uh, regarding mental health and addictions? I mean, we, we keep hearing that, mental health and addictions, mental health and addictions, but what needs to be done? What it needs to be done, you need more psychiatrists, plus you need more... Uh, People at around this reach note, and, and you need to turn around and put a health clinic into close to every place around that you could, and you say, well, you don't have the staff, but meanwhile, if you don't start trying something, it'll never get done. Do you think it helps that we're starting to hear more and more from people who are saying enough is enough? Uh, this is how our family has suffered, uh, and this is uh, what it means when you know uh, we talk about mental health and addictions. That this is the very real outcome. It breaks my heart and was, uh, almost brings tears to me. It's just knowing that people got to go through that. Second, the government is worried about a dollar bill and trying to somebody mine their pockets very concerned uh, when they get in there. Just let the big crowd, like the government, uh, let the all companies take over and give them a fortune, but don't worry about your own people. You know, don't add up. Like you think you as students, all that's going to school at their university, you think they put them through school. Right, use our tax dollars, put them through school, give them a chance for education, come have a university with no debt, and give them a chance to live. Now the government's not there for the people, it never was. Roger, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. God bless you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And we're going to go to the caller on line two. Hello. 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 How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Uh, no, it's upsetting. It seems like most people are looking for provincial and or federal help for for uh, mental addictions and that. Uh, let's look at the, what's happening with the municipality, what they're doing. Uh, they're going to spend millions of dollars to make a walking and biking trail from Elmdale Road to Freshwater Road for a bike and walking trail. Now, we still have people downtown sleeping on the streets, down around the shelters with no place to live. And we have buildings like the Hall Escazoni that's sitting there. It's going to fall down just like the old Grace nurses' residence. And these people need to get not only uh, a place to live. That would help them. And secondly, they have a methadone program. And most of that methadone program is only a, an additive to the young people's drug habits. They go get their methadone and then they go buy the drugs. The methadone treatment is not helping matters. Yeah, methadone, my understanding, is meant as a maintenance kind of um, uh, program to um, wean you off of, uh, I suppose, for all intents and purposes, street drugs, but you claim it's not working? No, it's just a replacement. I know for a fact that I've seen people go get the methadone, and then they then they end up uh, uh, then 
right outside the door they they set up another uh, buy for for drugs. And it's not getting people off. They've been on it for, for years and years on the methadone treatment. There's, there's no help in getting them off the methadone and the drugs. I tell you, all government levels should get involved with it. And there should be more areas where uh, the people that want help can go somewhere. And, and I know there's a rehab uh, down in Pleasantville and what have you, but we need so many more of these. Uh, even in remote areas and that, and, and help for people get them active, not just sit them in a room and say you you can only get three meals a day and no drugs, right? They, they need they need. I don't you don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It could be uh, mental health nurses or even regular nurses can help to help these young people. It's a sin to see all these people just 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 losing it, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's crazy. It's a, I, and I think the municipality should be involved with this too, not spending all that money. We got lots of walking trails and bike trails around this town. I driving across you know the bike trail between uh, on uh, Columbus and we have uh, to wrap it up, yeah. Yeah, quickly. Uh, I drove across there the other day, and there's a bike trail there, and there's this guy riding his bike out in the middle of Columbus Drive, not on the bike trail that spent millions to put there. And that's what will happen on Elizabeth Avenue. They'll still ride on the street. Caller, I appreciate your time. You've had the last word on open line this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now, news at noon with uh, Jolene Grimes. Uh, we'll be back with uh, news talk this afternoon. Uh, my colleague Brian Callahan will be hosting uh, that show for this afternoon. Really appreciate uh, everyone's input today. Thanks so much, everyone.